Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Christopher Harvey, Head of Equity Strategy at Wells Fargo Securities, joining us now. Chris, great to see you. Um, and uh, I hope that, that you continue uh, in your successful negative run into Christmas. I think everybody uh, is focusing on that right now. Um, talk to me about where we are with this cycle. A lot of people are starting to tell me that we're late cycle. Do you believe that? Is that true? And if so, what does it mean in terms of portfolio structure? Uh, I think we are a light cycle. At the very least, we're late mid-cycle, but I think we're, we're early late cycle. If you look at credit spreads, credit spreads are tight. If you look at growth, growth is decelerating. You're, you're starting to see a lot of speculation in the marketplace. And at the end of the day, we've had an incredible run. And, and what we're looking at is we're looking at a more um, hawkish Fed. These mm -hmm. are all classic late cycle signs. So I think we are late cycle at this juncture in the market. You think we're at late cycle and you also think we're close to an inflection point when it comes to risk appetite. What's the trigger? What flips the switch on that? So, so one of the things that we've looked at in the past, in the second year of a recovery, typically you see multiple compression. So why should we see multiple compression next year? We should see multiple compression next year for, for some of the reasons we're talking about. Right? You've squeezed a lot of the juice out of this trade. You're going to decelerate. The Fed is going to be more aggressive. We've had incredible. I've never seen the kind of pricing power corporations have mm. in my career spans over two decades. We're probably going to see peak pricing, which means we're, we'll likely see peak margins and peak multiples. That all tells you it's time to re-risk. Ti it's time to start thinking about the risk side of the equation first and, and the return second. And there's a ton of speculation out in the marketplace, no matter where you look. So, Chris, uh, as you talk about de-risking, how do you do that in your equity portfolio? You talk, do you move into low vol securities? Do you move into sort of more sustainable margin, low earnings variability? What's the, what's the factor that defines for you moving low risk in this climate? Gina, that, that's a great question. And, and we do like low vol, but really what we're pushing, what we think the best risk reward is, is to move up in quality. And, and there's three reasons to move up in quality. You're not paying much of a premium, especially as you go down the capitalization. The second thing is, as we've talked about, it's late cycle. Usually quality does much better when growth is decelerating. It, it does better when credit spreads are tight or widening. And, and it, does, it does better in, in a lower risk environment. And the last thing I would say is what quality does, it gives you a certain return distribution. And that return distribution is very attractive to us. It allows you to participate to the upside, but really protect to the downside. So you can stay in the game but really, you've just shifted around the risk of your portfolio. So we like higher quality a, a lot next year, and we've been recommending that to all our clients. Define higher quality for us, Chris. How do you define quality? <laughs> I, I find that investors are very frustrated with this term quality, as yep. every shop defines quality securities quite differently. For you at Wells Fargo, what defines quality? So, Gina, you're right. Whether you want to talk about quality, you want to talk about value, you ask 10 different people, you get 10 different answers. For, for us, there's a very large emphasis on balance sheet. We want really attractive balance sheets, balance sheets that have cash on hand. So we're looking at factors like net debt to EBITDA. The second thing we're looking at, we're looking for good stewards of capital, good management teams. And you find that with higher ROIC and ROEs. And the last thing that we look for is we want to stay away from the poor secular stories. So we're looking for higher net profit margins. 
So those are the three factors that, that we look at. Is big tech quality? Is Microsoft quality? Is, is Alphabet quality? I, that's the question that I hear a lot at the moment, and that I find really hard mm -hmm. to deal with. Yep, Guy, um, so we put together, we have a, a quantum mental quality portfolio. And in that portfolio, we do have Microsoft. Microsoft does have a very good balance sheet. It does have some very good metrics, so it does fit there. But, but that's not the only type of, of names you get in there. What we find typically are companies that have really good balance sheets, often cash on hand. They can use that during times of stress, either in buybacks or acquisitions. They also have good management teams. They know how to um, use their product. They know how to get the most out of it. So they typically have high ROICs and ROEs, and, and they're often in very good uh, secular stories, which sometimes put you into tech. But you can yeah. find that in consumer discretionary, you can find that uh, in industrials, and you can find that in tech. All right, Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo Securities, thank you so much. We're so lucky now to be joined by Republican Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin. He's also the head of the Select Committee on the Economy. Brian and Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. You put out a statement after Joe Manchin uh, said he was a no on this plan. You said common sense has prevailed. This bill has been stopped for now that it's far too costly, pushes policies that won't help the economy. But the bill ultimately is a sum of different parts. Are there any parts within this legislation, if taken separately, would find your support? I think there's topics in the bill that Republicans could come to the table and work on, but this bill was drafted in a partisan manner. Uh, and now a majority of the United States Senate uh, disapproves of it. Manchin just being the sole Democrat uh, that's realized how transformative this bill is. But I think there's key challenges that our country's facing. We could look at childcare. It's a problem for so many families. It's incredibly expensive. We should be able to come together and address the fact that we need to improve quality. We need to make sure it's accessible, that it's affordable. But if you actually look at the underlying provisions in this bill, as it relates to childcare, it moves us in the wrong direction. It makes it less affordable. It makes it less available by putting federal mandates on it and it drops quality because there's mandates that will ultimately make individuals who are currently providing childcare to lose their jobs. Mm. And so what we need to do is move away from the partisan approach that this administration has taken since day one and then there are areas where we could come together to truly address the challenges this country is facing. Well, and Congressman, you have worked across the aisle on the issue of child care. You worked with Democratic colleges, uh, colleagues on legislation uh, to provide new parents with a $5,000 advance through the child tax credit. Is an extension of that child tax credit, a continuation of those payments, something that you would like to see happen? Uh, the, the bill that I support is a reformulation of how the child tax credit is provided. It doesn't raise taxes. It doesn't cost revenue. It just allows parents the option to pull that forward uh, to the days after the birth of a child where many parents uh, need to have the ability to stay home with their child. What we need to do is have common sense approaches. Under the Democratic provisions, what it is, is a, a child allowance. It's money from the federal government, not tied to work and not tied to the early days of a child after birth. And so I think what we need to do is scrap Build Back Better altogether and then get on with the work of providing propose proposals that actually address the challenges Americans are facing. Um, Congressman, it's uh, Guy Johnson in London. Let me ask you a kind of high-level question. Will the Republicans do better in the midterms if the Democrats pass Build Back Better or don't pass Build Back better. 
because I can see it both ways. I can see that that there is the inflationary concern, there is a concern about an overheating economy that that may work in your favour. But if they don't pass it, maybe there's a lot of people in your district and elsewhere who are going to feel that they've been let down. Can you walk me through, kind of, actually from your political point of view, with a political kind of lens, what you see happening here? Well, I'll never cheer against the United States of America for political purposes. And so the concern is we need to stop Build Back Better in its tracks today. As of now, we got this thing on hold with Senator Manchin. We need to continue to prevent it from moving forward. If it does move forward, it would be disastrous for the United States economy. Americans are already feeling the inflationary pressures every day when they go to fill up their car at the gas station, when they go to the grocery store, right when they're going Christmas shopping here in the final days before Christmas. Build Back Better would simply drive costs higher. It will clobber Americans in the pocketbooks. Again, going back uh, to childcare, many economists predict that it would increase the cost of childcare by $13,000. Talk about inflation. And so if this bill passes, I think it will be as unpopular with the American people as we predict it will, which is why we need to stop it in the first place. I think the American people are waking up as to how far left the policies are. They're coming out of the Biden administration, how partisan they are. And I think there's going to be repercussions of that in November either way. In terms of the inflationary impact you think it's going to have, can you get a little outside of childcare? Can you be a little bit more specific in terms of why you think this is going to be a negative for the U.S. economy? Take take the take the child allowance to shift away from the actual childcare provisions and go into the tax portion of this bill that continues to provide Americans funds that is not tied to work. And so right now we have a labor crisis here uh, playing out not only in cities like Janesville where I'm sitting today, but across the country. We need to get workers back to work. The provisions in this bill do nothing to get workers back to work. And as we continue to see the labor shortage in the United States play out, we continue to see rising prices as a result. You also see stores that are closed. You can pretty much drive anywhere you want in Southeast Wisconsin or across the country We have restaurants that are closing on certain days because they don't have workers. And that's true not just in the restaurant industry, that's true across the board. And so the provisions in Build Back Better discourage workers from getting back to work and as a result will have a big impact, I believe, on rising prices. Congressman, it strikes me that the market is starting to get nervous about the removal of the extraordinary fiscal and monetary policy supports that were enacted throughout 2020 and early 2021. Do you see a path by which the fiscal policymakers can start to remove and normalize, rationalize spending without creating detrimental impacts on the economy? As Jay Powell, Chairman Powell, has testified in front of the House Financial Services Committee where I sit, uh, now for over a year, I have brought up my concerns with the mismatch between United States fiscal and monetary policy at a time where we're spending on the side of Congress well beyond our means, spending trillions of dollars more than we're taking in. At the same time that's occurring, the Federal Reserve has been pumping in and dramatically increasing its balance sheet. That gives me great concern for the inflation that we're seeing today. Other people disagree with that, but I believe that the monetary policy and the fiscal policy we've seen now for over a year is detrimental. I think it's positive that the Federal Reserve is finally recognizing that the rising prices, that the inflation is not transitory, and that we need to alter the policies coming out of Washington to get prices under control. I supported Powell's move that we need to actually taper down 
uh, the balance sheet. I would like to see this balance sheet come down quicker than he will ultimately do it. He's planning to hold uh, many of these securities until maturity, uh, understood. But what we need to do is shift policies quickly uh, because we continue to see rising prices and it's just clobbering people, average everyday workers all across this country. It's clobbering them in the pocketbook as we head into Christmas. All right. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning. That is Congressman Brian Stile, Republican from Wisconsin. We appreciate it. Is the U.S. a couple weeks behind the U.K. as well? That's the question I want an answer to. To help us answer our questions, we're joined now by Dr. Bhakti Hansati, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Hansati, we, we also heard from the Biden administration yesterday not talking about lockdowns or restrictive measures, focusing instead on therapies, on testing, on shoring up hospitals. They also reportedly are looking at shortening the quarantine period for people who test positive but are fully vaccinated and boosted. Is that something that would be an appropriate policy response given what we know? Absolutely. So, you know, the 14-day quarantine was when we were unvaccinated. It was with the alpha variant. Um, those transition dynamics have evolved with every single variant has come hence after. Um, we think that once if you're vaccinated, you test positive, but you're asymptomatic, your risk of transmitting to another individual is significantly decreased past seven days. And so a 10-day reduction for quarantine seems appropriate. Okay, so that may be good news for some people who want to travel during the holidays. But for travelers who are fully vaccinated, boosted, want to go see their families, we've also seen that being fully vaccinated and boosted doesn't necessarily prevent you from a positive case. And we are hearing from advisors to airlines, a medical advisor to AATA, saying that you're twice to three times as likely to get COVID-19 on an airplane with Omicron as you were with previous uh, previous waves of the virus and previous variants. Would you feel comfortable vaccinating? vaccinated and boosted traveling this holiday season? So this holiday season, I take a pause. So I've actually canceled my travel plans. However, I just returned from an international trip. So I will say, if you're going to travel, think about shorter distances, distances where you can remain masked for the whole time. Um, do think about getting tested the day of travel. That way, you know like what your risk is to transmitting to others once you arrive at your destination. Um, also, think about traveling at times when the airport is likely to be less busy um, and ensure that once you travel, that you decrease the number of stopovers. Because um, each stopover, you're, again, likely to unmask, have something to eat or drink. And it's those periods when you're unmasked when the risk of transmission is the highest. So traveling as safe as possible is going to be my recommendation. If travel is avoidable or if someone in your party is unvaccinated, has a medical illness, is elderly or immunocompromised, then definitely rethink travel. Dr. Hans, good morning. Yes, in that same piece that Kaylee was just referring to there, I was hearing more and more about uh, airlines staggering mealtimes just to avoid the situation where the whole plane removes their masks at the same time, which would seem to defeat the, uh, the object. Let me ask you about our ability to treat COVID-19 right now in, in any of its forms, any of its variants. How much better are we at treating uh, COVID-19 now? How much less fatal is it is if you go into hospital with COVID now versus where we were at the start of the pandemic? Because with these antivirals, we see announcements from the US government and the UK government today about big purchases of antivirals to, to take us through this next phase. 
So at the start of the pandemic, we were in a very different spot. Many of those who were sick and dying were people who had comorbidities and were elderly. A large proportion of that population, those who have the highest numbers of comorbidity, terminal illnesses and or elderly, have been vaccinated and successfully boosted. So the patient population is different. In addition to that, we also have some new therapies that are about to come on the market. So Paxlovid, Molupiravir, are two um, oral therapies that are available to individuals at the time of onset of symptoms that decrease hospitalizations. And we also have steroids and monoclonal antibodies, uh, which have been proven to be effective in certain populations. So together, these four tools would decrease the number of those needing to be hospitalized. It doesn't mean people will not end up in the ICU, but once you do end up in the ICU, our knowledge is better on how to make you stable and how to get you transitioned back to home. Dr. Hansadi, I'd love to talk a little bit about the symptoms of Omicron specifically, because anecdotally, it seems like prior variants were really focused on upper respiratory symptoms, sinus symptoms. And now I'm hearing more about gastrointestinal stomach symptoms with respect to Omicron. Is there a difference in the symptoms for this particular variant versus others, just in terms of us looking out for potential infections? So I would say that every single variant that we've had has presented slightly differently. However, we don't have quantitative data to tell us if it's markedly different with Omicron versus the previous. So in the medical like community, we use influenza-like illness symptoms, which includes a gambit of things. So still fever, headaches, shortness of breath, fatigue, diarrhea. Um, those are the symptoms uh, that we would say, like, please, you know, consider being getting tested for COVID, consider um, reaching out to your primary care provider. All right. Thank you so much for providing us some answers as we have so many questions. Dr. Bhakti Hansati of Johns Hopkins. We also need to talk about travel and how that may be looking different this holiday season in the face of Omicron. Brian Kelly, founder and CEO of The Points Guy, joins us now. Brian, from your view of the world, has demand been sapped substantially this holiday season? You know, it hasn't. We've been clocking uh, nearly 2 million or over 2 million passengers a day uh, through the TSA. Most of that's domestic travel. You know, international travel is still highly depressed, uh, especially to Asia. We, we had high hopes that Japan was going to open up for tourism and Bali and Thailand. And, you know, all of those have been extended. But domestic Caribbean travel is still at, you know, really strong levels. And even yesterday, we had almost the same amount of TSA passengers screened as two years ago, pre-pandemic. Do you think that might change uh, over the next few days, Brian? Uh, we're starting to see reports that because of the transmissibility of Omicron and that number being significantly higher than Delta and previous variants, that actually even on a plane which has medical grade air filtration, you are significantly more at risk, particularly in coach. Yeah, I did see that report today actually on Bloomberg. And, uh, you know, I think there still needs to be some more data, but certainly I've always recommended use those frequent flyer miles for business class. You know, some airlines in, during the pandemic even allowed you to take your mask off if you were flying in business or first class, because in a, a lot of those cabins, you're completely separated from other people. So where possible, I highly recommend use those points and upgrade. Um, but I don't know. I think there is fatigue amongst amongst travelers. I think people are still waiting to see, OK, Omicron is more transmissible. But if you're vaccinated, which many travelers are. What is the actual threat? But I think the biggest thing for internationals rebound is just people 
maybe aren't afraid of going to the hospital with with COVID, but getting stuck abroad yeah. and having to incur those costs or, you know, go to a government quarantine facility in some countries. So uh, I think as long as there's still that uh, cloud of uncertainty, you know, we're not going to see that full rebound in travel. But the airlines are certainly banking on it. They've added tons of new routes yeah. for summer 2022. Well, let's talk about summer 2022. I've been really surprised how well the airline stocks have held up over the last few days. They've been badly battered, of course, uh, over the last few months, but they seem to be holding up now. And the expectation, as you say, uh, is that there is going to be a huge rebound in demand for the summer. My question to you is, though, when are we going to know how strong that, that rebound is? Anecdotally, and I see it in the data when I talk to the airlines as well, and they obviously have real-time revenue models that are giving, this, giving us this information, that people are booking super close to the point of departure. So when are we actually going to start understanding what summer bookings really look like? You know, it's going to be in the, until the spring. I think this is going to be a little bit of a dark winter in terms of just uncertainty. But as we see, COVID pills are going to be coming out that will hopefully cut, you know, the impact of COVID infections and, you know, really take down that 10 day quarantine window, which is a big uh, obstacle to most travelers, you know, who simply can't afford to extend a trip by 10 days when they travel. Uh, so I think there's a lot of breakthroughs that are going to happen. We're going to learn more about this virus and and really learn how much protection the vaccines and boosters give us. So I, I don't anticipate until April time frame, but. I know the airlines are bullish. Delta turned a profit this past quarter with almost, you know, a fraction of their international travel, which historically has been their bread and butter. So, uh, you know, barring any curveballs, which we've seen time and time again, this pandemic, I do think summer 2022 is going to be the year that people really get back out there, take two week long trips and and spend some of that cash that they've been stockpiling and those frequent flyer miles. Brian, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the travel companies are utilizing points and loyalty programs to try to incentivize travel um, and activity. What, what are some of the more creative changes that you've seen to points programs over the course of the last couple of years? And are they starting to work? Yeah, I mean, so the airlines basically survived this huge downturn by selling and mortgaging uh, their loyalty programs for cheap cash. And, you know, they've done that in the past. So these loyalty programs in, in many cases are worth more than the planes themselves at the airlines. They're brilliant marketing schemes. You know, the airlines have been very flexible. Uh, it's even more flexible to use your points to book a trip. You can cancel and get them all back in most cases with airlines. You know, the airlines tried to do that with uh, paid tickets, but mm -hmm. you know, if you book basic economy, you're gonna get a voucher that you may not be able to use that might expire. So points have actually become even more valuable in my opinion, because they give extra flexibility. You know, we've seen most of the airlines extend elite status now for a second year as to not, you know, disenfranchise those, you know, ex-business travelers who mm -hmm. used to bring them tons of cash and probably will again soon. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't want to just completely, uh, you know, uh, say no to them and drop them to the lowest levels. And yeah. there've just been lots of promotions, whether about, you know, for people who aren't traveling to, to go shopping online, huge credit card sign-up bonuses. So uh, I don't think the days of, of points and miles being valuable are over anytime soon. Well, and Brian, I'm looking at a ski trip out west in a couple months, and I can t I check flights literally every day, and they're so expensive. Thank God for points because I don't think I'd be able to afford it otherwise. When can we expect prices to come down? And, you know, it just depends by the market. It's it's all supply and demand with airlines. Um, you know, you can still get screaming cheap international deals, even booking now for Europe next summer. We've seen, you know, business yeah. class Europe used to be four, five, six, seven thousand dollars, 
you can, I, all last summer I was flying for, you can easily find $1,500, $2,000 round trip business class to Europe. So Wow. Okay. So Brian, uh, on that note, yeah. I know Tom Keen is somewhere out there watching or listening to this. Where, where should he buy his ticket next? What's cheap? Well, I mean, Europe's cheap. And I think mm. Europe next summer, uh, you know, and, and not even in the summer. I love Europe in the, the shoulder season, April, May or September, October. Um, but, uh, you know, it really depends. I do recommend people wait because mm. you can, you know, unless you like the process of planning a trip, which I do believe is good for mental health, even just having something booked if you're not even going to take it. But, you know, <laughs> things change so rapidly that, you know, when you're buying tickets, I would wait and see what the situation is, you know, 60, you know, 90 days out from your trip. All right. It's so really just depends. I hope Tom Keen heard that. Not just waiting for an entry <laughs> po point in the market, waiting for an entry point into the travel space. Thank you so much to Brian Kelly, the Points Guy founder and CEO. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.